you all had a good Christmas and enjoyed time with your family, maybe lots of good food and good fellowship. Over the, the past few days, um, my family and I got to go visit my family up in Pennsylvania. And one of those evenings while, while I was sitting in the living room, the living room that I grew up in as a child, my sister was sitting beside me and she pointed to the stairwell over there and she said, do you, do you remember how you used to, after you got in trouble, you would just sit on those steps and peek through those railings? And of course I remembered because it was a frequent occurrence in my childhood. And it would typically go something like this. I would commit the act or commit the crime, right? And typically this was with my, my mother because I didn't do this whole process with my dad. I, I knew better. But typically I'd commit the crime. My mom would say, okay, go upstairs to your room and basically sit there and wait for discipline to come up the steps for you. And so what I would do is I would start that climb up those steps, but I would go very slowly, right? Very, very slowly. And I just wouldn't make it to the top of the steps. I would actually sit down on the steps, and I would look through the railings, and I would just wait, wait for somebody to notice, to see that I had not obeyed. I had not gone up to my room yet to await discipline. And my mom would see me, and then she would remind me, go up to your step, go up to your room, to which I would then begin to plead my innocence. And it wasn't long into my defense any time that my mom would say the words, not another word, to which I would reply, okay. And I would begin my defense again. She said, I mean it, not another word. Don't even say okay, to which I would reply, all right. Yeah, believe it or not, and this would go on and on either till my mom's patience wore out and she was very patient with me, or I ran out of synonyms for okay and all right. Now, why did I do that as a child? I remember thinking I wanted to be the boss, I wanted to be in charge, I wanted to have the final word, because there's something about that that gives me a certainty. I've got everything in control. I've got the power. And the truth is, even though we may not act like children much anymore, we really still like to have the final word. We still like to have the final say. We don't like other people telling us what to do. We don't like seeing the sign that says speed limit. We don't like the doctor telling us, you need to watch what you eat. We typically don't like authority. It's kind of a bad word in our head. You have this assignment due this week. This is your homework. But on the other hand, while we, we don't like authority, there's kind of a way that we, we do like authority, right? We do like something certain. You've been battling a disease, an illness. You go to the doctor and he says, it's gone. You're healed. Your disease is gone. He's an authoritative figure and we like to hear those words. Or for some reason, you're on trial and the judge slams the gavel and says, you're not guilty. That's good news for us. Or you may be standing beside the person you love and you hear the minister say, by the power and the authority invested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife. So on the one hand, we don't like authority. On the other hand, we do like the authority. On the one hand, we want to have the final say. On the other hand, we like when somebody else has the final say. But whether or not you tend to like authority or dislike authority, that really doesn't matter that much in the end. What matters is what is the final say or who has the final say? 
What can I know about certainty about this life, my purpose in this life? Is there a God? Has he spoken to us? How do I know? Who has the final word? That's what I want to talk about today in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be at Hebrews chapter 1. You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1001. If you don't have a copy of God's word, you'll be helped by opening to Hebrews chapter 1. And the book of Hebrews, which we, we think, most people think, was written in the 60s, is something that I think we can easily identify with. So it was written to Christians, probably Jewish Christians, with a Jewish background in the first century. And whoever the author of Hebrews was, we're not sure who that was. But he was writing to these early Christians saying, don't go backwards, right? There's this temptation, you're following Jesus, you believe he's the Messiah, but now there's this temptation to go backwards into the Old Testament. And he's saying, don't go backwards. But even though we're 2,000 years removed from those first century Christians, I think there's much importance for us today. For, for example, they were facing much external persecution, external pressure on the outside, right? If this was written in the 60s, and these Christians lived anywhere in the vicinity of Rome, they would have been under the rulership of Nero. And you don't have to read much about Nero to know he didn't like Christians. This is the guy who would kill Christians and put them on poles to light his streets. Now, we may not have faced or do face persecution like this in the U.S., like many of our brothers and sisters around the world, but we face increased external pressures, right, on our faith, our culture, maybe our friends, maybe even our family. There are certain influences that want to squeeze the faith out of us. But maybe even more serious is the book of Hebrews addresses not only external pressures, but it's internal pressures that we face as followers of Jesus. In chapter 6, the author would say, you should be teachers by now. Or chapter 12, you need to cast off the sin that is easily besetting you. It's, it's weighing you down and you need to run the race. So there's these external pressures, but maybe it's the internal pressures that you and I are more familiar with. We can become stagnant in our walk with Jesus. Jesus is not supreme in our life which is what the book of Hebrews is about. Where Jesus is not our greatest treasure, we put other things in front of him. And I look at this book and I think, yeah, I, I can identify with these things. I can identify with this, whether it's my shifting circumstances or wavering feelings, I can become stagnant. We can easily become stagnant. But I love this book not only because it addresses the problems that we face or the external and the internal pressures that we face, but the solution that this book presents. The author doesn't minimize the dangers, right? He doesn't say they're not there, they're not that bad. He doesn't pretend that they don't exist. No, there are real dangers. We live in a fallen world. In a sense, the monsters are real. But he provides the remedy. And the remedy is the surpassing worth, the glory of Jesus Christ. In this Jesus, you can have certainty. You can know who has the final word, the final say on your life. And not only your life now, but what are you going to be doing 10,000 years from now? How do you face the external pressure trying to squeeze out your faith? You look and keep your eyes fixated on the glory of Jesus. How do you overcome the internal conflict of unbelief, spiritual lethargy, 
and the sin that so easily besets us, you listen to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. You be reminded of his grace, his gospel. And when you behold and listen to how this book describes Jesus, your New Year's resolution and your vision for 2020, the priorities that you have find their proper place. And this is what I pray for us today, that you would find certainty in God's final word. So listen how this book begins. No introduction, just straight to the argument. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What I want us to see today, that kind of the main idea of, of these first four verses, really the first three verses, verse four is kind of a transition into the next section. What I, what I want you to see is this, is that Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech to the world. Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech to the world. And as we'll ask later, as this begs the question, are you listening? Can you hear it? First of all, let's look at what is so obvious from this passage is the fact that God has spoken. God speaks. This book opens with one long sentence in, in the original. It's one long sentence about the God who speaks. God is the subject. The verb is speaking. Verse 1, God spoke. Verse 2, he has spoken. The emphasis is on the God who speaks. As the author of Hebrews surveys history, right, long ago, in the past, and now in the present, he informs us that God is not silent. He has communicated with us. He has revealed himself to us. He has told us what he is doing in the world. If someone were to ask you, what is so peculiar about the God of the Bible? What is so unique about him compared to other conceptions or ideas about God? What would you say? What would you say about this God? Maybe you would point them to his nature. He is triune. That is, he's one God in three persons. Maybe you would point them to his incarnation. That is, God became flesh. Maybe you would point them to his perfect harmony of love and justice. But may I suggest, while all of those are true and essential, as others already have, that a key distinguishing factor about the God of Holy Scripture is that he speaks. God is not merely a strong force. God is not merely an idea or a concept. God is not a higher being who keeps to himself. He's not just an intelligent designer, although he is. The God of Holy Scripture is indeed a God who speaks. How are we first introduced to God when we open the first book of our Bible? In the beginning, he was there, and he said, he spoke. He opened his mouth and talked. 
His speech brought the universe into existence. Is this not the message of the Bible that God speaks? He reveals who he is. He reveals what he's doing in the world so that we may know him, so that we may enjoy him, so that we may know what is right and what is wrong. God has spoken. That's clearly the emphasis of these opening verses that is kind of slammed, confronted to your face. God has spoken. Don't pass over this. And two things from this. Because God has spoken, this means we don't define God. Because God has spoken, we don't define who God is. We live in a time where people think, maybe you even think, that it's our right to define God. I don't think God would say that. I can't believe in a God who would do something like that. Or if I were God, I think I would be like this, therefore God must be more like me. But what this does is it makes God a concept, an idea, not a reality. But since God has spoken, he has revealed who he is, what he is like, God defines God. And because God has spoken, we're not left guessing about what is true. What is truth? We do this, uh, we live in a time where truth is not based on reality, but it's relative to our preferences, our backgrounds, right? And it's true, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different places. We, some of us talk different. But just because we come from different backgrounds does not mean that truth is relative, as we may say. We do this with morality, right? What is right and what is wrong? We say that depends on where you're from. That depends on your culture. But not if God has spoken. Or religion. We do this with religion. Your religion is fine. Your religion is fine. But any claim on one truth just can't be unless God has spoken. You may have come across the story about the six blind men and the elephant, There are six blind men touching an elephant. I don't know why, but they are. And they're trying to determine what is in front of them. What are they feeling? One of them feels the belly of the elephant and says, this thing is a wall. Another one feels the ear. And he says, you know what? This this is a fan. The other one feels the tail. He says, it's a rope. And the point of the story is, this is us trying to find God. We're all blind men when it comes to God. We know part of him. Maybe some religion has some truth about him, but we don't really know who he is. No one is more right than anyone else. We're all just grasping in the dark, thinking we know more than we do. But as one pastor named Kevin DeYoung points out, there are two enormous problems with this analogy. First, The whole story is told from the vantage point of someone who clearly knows that the elephant is an elephant. For the story to make its point, the narrator has to have a clear and accurate knowledge of the elephant. So the person telling the story knows it's an elephant. That's why he can tell the story. But second, and maybe an even more serious flaw, and while this describes the condition of humanity, our inability to know God, we're blind... But the story never considers the paradigm-shattering question, what if the elephant talks? What if he tells the blind men 
That wall structure is my side. That fan is really my ear. And that's not a rope. It's my tail. If the elephant were to say all this, would the six blind men be considered humble for ignoring his word? That's, that's the concept. Is nobody has the truth. Nobody can know. It's more humble. You need to be loving. You can't say that you know. But if God has spoken, would we be humble to ignore that? No. On the basis of God's speech, we can say what is true. We can say this is false. We need a God who speaks. What about those who have died? We have a God who speaks. What about those who are suffering? We have a God who speaks. What about those who are battling anxiety? We have a God who speaks. God speaking is the only basis we have for any confidence, any certainty, any hope in this life now and in the life to come. God speaks. But in emphasizing the God who speaks, the author of Hebrews is leading us to see the supremacy, the glory of Jesus. And so not only does God speak, but the second thing we see is that Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech. Notice the contrasts that are going in in these verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do you see the contrast there? You see, the prophets are contrasted with the son, and the past is compared to these last days. Consider the many times and ways of the prophets. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. God spoke to Job from a whirlwind. God spoke to Elijah by what? A still, small voice. God spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision. He inspired poems and songs, some of which we read today. And my favorite, he even opened the mouth of a donkey to speak, which should encourage us all that God can use anyone. Many times and in many ways. But notice the contrast to the prophets, to the son. But now he's spoken to us by his son. The author of Hebrews is not undermining the Old Testament or the prophets. What God has said in the past is true, is right, is good. The Old Testament is for us. The Apostle Paul would write. But left to itself, the Old Testament is what? It's incomplete. The Old Testament is anticipatory in its nature. It awaited completion. It was looking ahead to fulfillment. Something greater was yet to come. And that something greater, the author of Hebrews informs us, is God's son, Jesus. Jesus is the conclusion that fulfills the promises and the prediction of the prophets. Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech. He's ultimate. He's what the whole Bible was pointing to. Do you remember those dudes on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was resurrected? They came to Jesus, and they're basically saying it would have been cool if this guy was the Messiah. Wouldn't that be great? And what does Jesus tell them? He says everything that was written, and he refers to the Old Testament, what? Was pointing to me. Jesus is the ultimate speech of God. He's what the whole Bible is pointing to. The whole entire Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus, and the entire New Testament is all reflecting on the person and work of Jesus. Since Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet, it makes sense that he is also it. He's the goal. 
We're not looking for another message after him. This is why the author of Hebrews emphasizes in the last days, God has spoken to Jesus. Now, what do you think of when you think about the last days? Maybe you think of those, those final, I don't know, three or four days right before Jesus returns. Well, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the last days. It's true that those are the last, last, last days, but when the Bible uses the term the last days, especially when the Old Testament spoke of the last days, typically in the prophets, it was speaking of Messiah's arrival. When this Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, would come, he would initiate, he would begin the last days. That's why the New Testament, we find statements like, from John, dear children, this is the last hour. It wasn't literally the final 60 minutes of the universe, but this is the last period of time in God's agenda. Or when Paul writes to Timothy of the difficulty of the last days, he's not saying many years from now in the future there's going to be, no, he's talking about right now, Timothy, these last days are full with difficulties and trials. Biblically speaking and thinking from the Old Testament, The first advent of Christ, which we just celebrated, initiated the last days. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the last days are here and will be here until Christ returns. So we think about the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. That's what the Bible portrays as the last days. So brothers and sisters, it is completely accurate to say that we are living in the last days. And so why does the author of Hebrews use this? He's saying that in Jesus, the last days have come upon us, God's message for the last days. Jesus is the decisive and final word. As one author put it, Old Testament revelation came piecemeal over a millennium or more. New Testament revelation came in one installment, complete in the Son, and conveyed by those who heard him. This is what the author of Hebrews even says if you were to look down in chapter 2. He says, we bore witness to these things. Jesus attested to these things. We were there. Jesus is God's ultimate. He's the goal, but he's also the final word of God. He's the final speech to the world. And because Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech, we don't need to find another, right? Right? Everything long ago was pointing to Jesus. Now everything is complete in Jesus. Certainly we still await his second coming, but the work of redemption, what God was intending to do with his son, is complete, as we will later see in this passage. We're not looking for another prophet. Those were in the past. God used to speak through the prophets. Now he speaks through his son. This is why we need to inform and tell our Muslim friends not to look to Muhammad, but to look to Jesus. This is why we need to tell and inform our Mormon friends not to look for another prophet, but to look back to Jesus. We're not looking for somebody else to come. Jesus is the pinnacle. He is what we were waiting for. Because Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech, we trust the Bible to be sufficient. Think about how the Bible was written as that one quote I referred to. The Old Testament took many years to write, to complete. There's a long process. The Old Testament was all complete within the first century. John 16, 14 describes the Holy Spirit. His work is to inform the apostles of what to reflect on Jesus about. And what did they do? They wrote it down. 
We trust the Bible to be sufficient because the work of Christ is done. His redemption is complete. Therefore, we trust God's revelation, who God is, what he's doing in the world, is also complete in Christ. We don't want to separate that revelation, God making himself, and the redemption, the work of Christ. We don't want to separate those two and say, one is finished, yet one is not. No, they, they go together. But all of this, all of this information, I think begs the question, why should anyone listen to this Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, and I think it's good to be reminded, why am I still listening to this Jesus? Maybe you're planning out your next year. Why should I still go to church every week and worship this Jesus? Why should I still give my money to see the gospel proclaimed through the nations? Or maybe you're here today and you don't claim to be a Christian or you don't regularly attend church, you, you don't regularly give, you don't feel that interested. Why should you consider changing that? If Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech to the world, are you listening to that? But the author of Hebrews grounds some reasons why you ought to listen to Jesus. Every day you and I are bombarded with countless voices. Right? They're all saying, listen to me. News feeds, billboards, commercials, news stations, and people surround us in every direction. All of which are competing for our time, our attention, our desires, our allegiances, and our money. And I'm afraid that many of us, if, if we're not careful, we can easily become ignorant and think that nobody's speaking to us, and thus susceptible to the voices that surround us. But there's a voice that must stand above the rest. There's many voices, but there's one that must stand above the rest. There's a word that must inform how we live our lives. There is a message that must catch our hearts, motivate our desires. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, you, you may ask, why Jesus? Again, we're asking, why Jesus? Or maybe you have a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. Why should I listen to someone that lived 2,000 years ago? Why should I listen to this guy? Why should I trust in what he says in a book that was written 2,000 years ago? Well, the author of Hebrews, who actually was alive at the time, as we remember, gives us some reasons, some grounding for trusting in Jesus, for listening to Jesus, for trusting in Jesus. And it's this, basically. We listen to Jesus because of who he is and because of what Jesus has done. First, let's think about how this passage describes who Jesus is. And maybe you're talking to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, whoever, somebody about Jesus, and they're trying to figure out, who exactly is this guy, Jesus? Well, instead of Googling this, one of the best places to go to is Hebrews. You want to know who Jesus is? Who really is this person? These first few verses, and really this whole book is a great description of Jesus. Some of the most profound statements ever made about him. But first of all, we see that he is the heir of all things. Why should you listen to Jesus? Because of who he is. He is the heir of all things. To be the heir of all things is to be entrusted with all things. As the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, he is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, which we read earlier. Do you remember what Psalm chapter 2? All the nations to this promised one will be his heritage. He owns all the cattle, right? 
He owns everything. He's the heir of all things. Jesus is Lord over all. He is master over all. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? What did the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the heir of all things. Number two, we see that he's the creator and sustainer of all things, right? So he's not only been the appointed all heir, but through whom also he created the world. And on down we see in verse three that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He owns all things. The father through the son created the universe. The son is not a created being. He's not just a high angelic being. He is himself the agent of all creation. Literally, this word could be the ages, not just the world, but the ages, time itself. He is the creator of. Does this not remind you of another passage in scripture, John chapter one, there in the fourth gospel? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer of all things. Think about the vastness of our universe, or at least what we think we know about it. At the same time, think about the most tiny essential elements, the details of our universe, at least what we think we know about it, as far as we can tell. Some of the furthest known galaxies exist over 10 billion light years from the earth. I don't I don't even comprehend that, but that's a lot. Jesus is creator over that, and he sustains all of that. If we change gravity, as one author wrote, by even a tiny fraction of a percent, even so that you would say one billionth of a gram heavier or lighter, the universe becomes so different that there are no stars, galaxies, or planets, and with no planets, there would be no life. If the electromagnetic force were slightly stronger or weaker, by one part in 10 to the 37th power, atomic bonds and complex molecules could not form. No wonder this person is the ultimate and final speech of God. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. Certainly laws we look to sustain all things. We see how the world works. But standing behind the law of gravity is Jesus. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He sustains it. If he stopped sustaining it for one second, we would be gone. And third, we see he is himself God. He's not just the heir of all things. He's not just the creator and sustainer of all things. He is himself God. Look at verse, verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of of God. When you look into the glory of God, it's Jesus. The Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, which was displaying the glory of God, this is Jesus. He doesn't just reflect God. He's not just like the moon, which reflects the sun's light, and then we see it. He is himself the radiance of God's glory. He is himself God. Notice elsewhere it says, he is the exact replica of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Most likely what the author of Hebrews was thinking about was 
When the king or Caesar takes his, his stamp, dips it in the wax and seals the letter or decree, you could then see, is this the real thing or is this a forgery? Well, it's as if God the Father, when he takes his ring, dips it in the wax and stamps it, whose face do you see? You see Jesus. He is the exact replica. He is the exact radiance. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Whatever God is, Jesus is. And it's things like this, truths like this, profound verses like this that, that help us understand what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. How can you say there's one God, yet he exists in three persons? It's, it's verses like this. It's what the early church used as they, they were thinking about who Jesus is, who God is, how do they relate to one another. That helped them understand that God is not just one person, but he's one being in three people. And if that hurts your head or blows your mind, that's okay. But we're looking at what God has spoken to us, how he has described his son. Jesus is equal with God. Remember what Philip was asking Jesus in John 14? Show us the Father, Jesus. Show us him. Philip, Jesus replied, whoever has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Is Jesus worth the external pressure you will face for following him? Absolutely. Is Jesus trustworthy enough to give your life to as you battle with these internal struggles that you may have? Absolutely. There's no one greater. But not only do we look to Jesus, do we trust Jesus because of who he is. We trust him because of what he's done. Everything that we've been reading about Jesus has been continuous until this point, until this point in the passage. Right? He is the heir of all things. He's the continuous heir of all things. He wasn't the heir, now he's the heir, and he will continually be the heir. He is the, the sustainer of all things. Right? He's continually sustaining all things. It's not as if he will stop. He is the continual radiance of God's glory. It's not as if he will stop radiating the glory of God. He is continually. But there's something that happens in this passage at the end of verse 3 that he doesn't continue to do, but he's done once. The son now has done something that is never to be done again. Here we begin to understand what Jesus' function is as our great high priest, our great representative before God the Father. Jesus is more than speech, the revelation of God. That is, Jesus is the revelation of God. He shows who God is. He's his final speech, but he's also much, much more. And we need more than just knowing the truth, don't we? Because if you look at the truth, what do we discover when God speaks the truth to us? We discover that we need more. We discover our sin. We discover that we give our desires, our allegiances, those things that should be given to God, we give to everything else. We need more. We need a savior. We need a redeemer. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. This is after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Old Testament priests never got to sit down. Their work was never complete. But Jesus cries from the cross, it is finished. He is resurrected, he is ascended, and he takes his seat beside the Father. Father, the work that you sent me to do, 
the plan that we've had from eternity past to go save those people. It's done. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? The angels roaring in heaven. And the father says, sit down. It's done. Father, it's done. It's finished. This is all demonstrating the finished work of Christ. We don't need another sacrifice. We don't need another priest. And if, if you want to If you don't believe me, read the book of Hebrews, because that's what he goes on to argue. We don't need another temple. We don't need another sacrifice. Jesus is it. Finished work of Christ. He has accomplished our redemption once and for all. He sat down. Every day, you and I fail. Maybe it's a sinful thought. Maybe it's a small, seemingly small outburst of anger. Maybe it's that flash of lust. Maybe a seemingly innocent word of gossip. Maybe we look at others and become bitter or jealous. Maybe we look at others and become proud. No matter what sin it is, every day you are in great need of grace. You're in great need of a savior. Someone who has the authority, the final word over your sin. Someone who can look at you and truly and honestly declare that you're not guilty. That you're not dirty anymore. The stains of sin are not there anymore. You need that. I need that. Everybody needs this. And the worst thing we can possibly do is, one, ignore this message or seek to atone for our own sin. Right? Try to make excuses. It's not as bad as it looks. Or, I promise I'll never do this again. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't try to do that. Look to the one who is sitting and ruling and reigning, who once for all has made purification for sins. He doesn't have to do it again. Maybe memorize this verse today. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of this is profound truth, is wonderful truth. The question still remains, are you listening? Can you hear it? Will 2020 be different because of knowing who Jesus is and because of knowing what Jesus has done? Because in this, we we kind of have a warning and an encouragement, right? This is all really encouraging for us who are following Jesus, but it's an absolute warning if you're not following Jesus. If all of this is true, think about the absolute danger of rejecting this Jesus. You're headed for sheer destruction. Think about the glory and the salvation and the hope and the certainty you have by trusting in this Jesus. As you go out this next week, this next year, I wanna close with giving you three resolutions based on this passage. Three practical ways that you can be reminded of God's final and ultimate word in Jesus and be assured that you're listening. Number one, since Jesus is God's ultimate and final word, sounds simple, but read your Bible. God still speaks. God keeps speaking through what he's already said. The word of God is what, as Hebrews will say, active and alive. The Holy Spirit speaks through these words. 
And as one pastor said, the word of God is more than enough for the people of God to live their lives to the glory of God. Read your Bible. That's why we have Bible reading plans out there. That's why we have all kinds of Bible studies here at the church. Get involved in something. Know your Bible. Know the God who speaks. Know Jesus, God's final revelation. Number two, since Jesus is God's ultimate and final word, come to church. Now, most of you I see are familiar faces. Some of you I don't know. But come to church to hear the preached word of God. If I'm doing this thing right, if Stephen's doing this thing right, or if Josh is doing this thing right, we're not up here so that you can listen to us. We spend time studying God's word to tell you what it means and how to apply it to your life. So that's not merely me speaking or Stephen speaking. It's as if God is speaking. So make it a point to keep coming to hear the word of God preached. And finally, third, since Jesus is God's ultimate and final word, Speak with confidence about your faith. You don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. You don't have to think, well, did God really say? Is Jesus really the one? God's word tells us he is. And it's not just another holy book. These are eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. These are the earliest followers, the earliest witnesses we have about Jesus. And they're telling us things like this. Trust your Bible and speak with confidence about your faith. Is Jesus worthy? Indeed, he is. You need to know his word. Are there real dangers out there? Yes. But there's a real savior. And Jesus is God's ultimate and final speech. And as was said in Mark chapter nine, this is God's beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who speaks. You are the God who has spoken. May we, may we trust your words. May we believe them. As we think about the hope, we need certainty in this life. And you said that you have given to, that to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And so I pray that these words, these verses, although they were only a few today, they contain such profound truths about your son. I pray that they would take deep root in our hearts, that they would transform us so that we may love you and love our neighbor. And we give you all the glory and all the praise because of your glorious son. In Jesus' name, amen.